Welcome to this edition of Backstage the Enharmonic. I'm your host, Sean J. Kennedy. Today's guest is multi-Grammy-winning artist Gordon Goodwin. Gordon leads the Big Fat Band, and he also leads the Little Fat Band, which is releasing a brand new recording on September 9th called An Elusive Man. This interview is certainly a lot like Gordon's music. There's unexpected twists and turns in our chat, but it's always exciting and interesting. So I hope you enjoy this edition of Backstage at the Enharmonic. Hey, Gordon, this is Sean Kennedy. Sean Kennedy, how are you doing? Thanks for, thanks for getting in touch. I'm doing great, man, and it's an honor and a privilege to speak to you. Um, I've heard your music for years now, and uh, to spend some time chatting with you, I'm really looking forward to this. You sound like a, a very gracious man with excellent taste. <laughs> and you're a very wise man. <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I said that to, uh, I, I learned that line from Bill Berry. Do you remember Bill Berry? He was a uh-huh. trumpet player, and he pl- I, I, was, I, I got to play with him in Louis Belson's big band when I was really, just got out of college, and I played with Louis and did a tour, and I, I heard Bill, who, Bill Berry played with Ellington, so... Um, Wow. Really old school guy, you know, and, and he was so, every night, just played with such consistency. And I went up to him. I got the nerve to go up to him after a couple of weeks on the road. And I said, Mr. Barry, I just wanted to tell you, it's a, it's a pleasure to hear you every night. He goes, young man, you're a man of exquisite taste. And I thought it was just like such a, a classy way to accept the compliment, you know. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to have to try to fit that in this year somehow when someone says something to me. That's actually a problem for a lot of us, accepting compliments. And, oh, and yeah, a lot yeah. of times, musicians tend to de- deflect them with things, you know. They'll, say, you know they'll, they'll make some kind of funny joke or, or you know, dismiss it. But a lot of t- people uh, need to pay those compliments. Like, I, I got a chance years ago to do a gig uh, with, the, with the Boston Pops, and John Williams was the conductor at the time. Mm. And after the gig, and it, we, it was with Johnny Mathis and Natalie Cole and... Um, Tommy Flanagan was a piano player on there. I got to meet Tommy and everything. It was a great night. And so afterwards, there was an after party. And I went up to John Williams, and I cornered him. You know, and I said, I'm sorry, man. I ha- this is not for you. This is for me. I have to tell you what, what you meant to me and, and how inspired I've been by all, everything you've done. And I'm sorry you hear that every day from people, but I, I don't care. I have to tell you. It's for me, not for you. you know? And uh, he looked <laughs> exactly. at me and goes, well, that's that's uh i appreciate that very much and he you know he was uh you could tell uh, he hears that like all, you know 10 times a day but um you know no I, it, I totally it made a memory because, for me that's for sure right because on may 4th this year john was in philly and i had a chance to speak to him for three minutes and for me especially it was an ep- I, this was an epic meeting like you know to meet my virtually probably my biggest hero that i've ever had in music and I'm walking up to the guy, and I'm like, what am I going to say to him? So all I said was, thank you. I said, you know, you inspired me. You wrote the soundtrack to my life. And, uh, again, like you said, he was like, oh, thank you. That's very nice. But, you know, how many times has he heard that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because yeah, that is the real question when you meet people like that. Go, what, where do you even start? Mm-hmm. Where do you start with a John Williams, you know? And and uh, and I agree. I uh, I did an interview not too long ago, and they asked about, you know, okay, give me one person. You know that's your biggest influence, and and I I couldn't get away from John Williams was the guy. You know, 
That's right. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with all due respect to Cannonball and to Stravinsky and to uh, Count Basie and all the others, you know, uh, John Williams, is uh, he's on another level. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, especially for me, um, I think that's the first time I noticed music. I was five when the first Star Wars came out. And looking back, I'm like, I actually noticed music as, five year, as a five-year-old kid, and it was all due to John Williams. So Yeah, I think that up. might be one of his, uh, some aspect of his genius is that the, his music has so much content and compositional integrity and all that stuff, and yet it's so relatable to, to everybody. Right, and you know what? This interview's about you, so I'm going to turn. I'm going to flip that around. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Figures I'd hijack the interview and turn it into a John Williams geek fest. No, but that's okay. I love John, and uh, it it dovetails into something that I, I've always wanted to tell you. Um, when I when I was coming up through high school and college and first got my license, I think I was really excited to drive because I could chase Maynard Ferguson around because he'd play colleges and high schools all around here. And I can't tell you how many Friday nights and Saturdays me and my buddies would pile into my old. Uh, Dotson Station Wagon and see Maynard. And um, I think for a lot of my students now, you are Maynard because your music is, it's readily accessible to kids that aren't, you know, jazzers. But then when the jazzers start digging into, into it, they're like, man, this is some meaty, this is difficult stuff. And I think a lot of your compositions have what uh, Mr. Williams' compositions have also. Um, they're for everyone, and it's uh, great music that'll be around forever. Well, that that's a ridiculous compliment, and and uh, <laughs> I I I, uh, it, I have to say that it uh, isn't a deliberate thing on 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 my part in terms of trying to concoct some sort of a style that I'll say what can I write that has accessibility and anything like that. All it was was a, a confluence of all the different musics that I have loved, and and I. Uh, grew up in high school just as a jazz snob and just loved jazz and nothing else, you know, and I hated mm-hmm. pop music and I didn't like classical music and I was just not, just about big bands and jazz and a, a, even a kind of a narrow definition of that. And then I got to college at Cal State Northridge, which is out here in California, and they didn't have a jazz major at the time. So mm-hmm. they And they said to me, they had a really good jazz program, but not a jazz major, and so I had to study classical saxophone, you know. And I, they said, and by the way, you're going to study conducting and you have to study, you know, counterpoint and you have to study, you know, orchestration and music history and a lot of things I would have never chosen to do. But I think those, those influences informed my, my, uh, once I got and really started to get, find my voice as a composer, all those things kind of fit into it. So I had the jazz thing. And, and the other thing that happened at the same time, I was playing at night in a band in a club. So we were playing, you know, Stevie Wonder, Earth, Wind, and Fire, the Beatles, and stuff mm. like that, which mm. taught me a little bit about that kind of stuff, and and I gained an appreciation for for pop music and in terms of its good qualities. And so now, you listen to to the big fat band and the other music I write, it's kind of all that stuff, you know. And mm-hmm. and so uh, I have great, you know, I get on my soapbox fairly often about you know the lack of content in pop music today. And so it isn't just about accessibility, you know. It isn't just about a, hum- a hummable melody for me. Because um, if I have a melody in one of my charts that, that's memorable and easy and, and punchy and hooky, it's probably going to have some fancy changes under it to add another level of nuance, you know, another, another layer of, uh, of subtext. Right. I guess that's, that's worked for us, you know, as, as, a, as a band in terms of being able to market our music um, 
to people that aren't jazz fans or, or aren't trained musicians, you know. They're not going to, people that aren't going to hear counter melodies or, or substitute mm-hmm. chords or any, any of that fancy stuff. They're not going to hear that, but they might dig the groove or they might relate to, you know, what the basic melody of the song is. And, and uh, maybe then they will intuit those harmonies, you know. Maybe they'll, they'll kind of learn to appreciate that. I mean, that's really one of our bigger problems, I think, that, you know, with the cuts and arts funding. People aren't hearing orchestras. They're not really hearing this kind of music, uh, certainly not in the media very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're not, you know, and not really hearing it, you know, in school unless you're in the, unless you're in the band program, you know. So, and, uh, so that's why we're uh, uh, a big part of our efforts is to, you know, try to push back on, on the fact that if you want to save money, we cut the arts program first. It's just a foolhardy decision, I think. Exactly. I kind of cut. Yeah, I, I covered a lot of ground with that answer. I realized that, but um, that was great. Uh, but I, I but I, I do I do appreciate that comment, and uh, I'm I'm grateful that that the music strikes people that way. Yep, definitely. And you know, uh, something you said there too reminded me. I just pulled out. And speaking of Maynard, just because for sake of example, uh, I had the uh, Chameleon album that I used to listen to a lot when I was young, and I think like 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when I listened to it, I was like, "Wow, he's playing really high. Wow, it's fast." You know, and that kind of attracted me as a younger guy. And now I'm listening mm-hmm. to it now going, oh, that, that change was cool. What was that? What was that turnaround at the end? So at all different levels, just like your music, I, like a sixth grader can listen to Jazz Police, and they're like, yeah, it's a rock and groove. Yeah, you get yeah. 12th grade high school kids, they're like, wait a minute, those changes aren't quite normal. Like <laughs> the pop music. So it ties it all together, your stuff. Uh, so That's a, that, that is such an interesting phenomenon, that, that yeah. chart in particular, because... You know, years ago, I had a gig with Johnny Mathis. I mentioned him a minute ago. I was conducting for yep. him. And when I first started with him, I, I, I would watch him go out there every night, and he would sing Misty. It's probably his biggest mm. hit. Every night. You know, and I, and I, I, as a jazz musician, you know, we're used to changing things and evolving, and every night is a different thing, you know. But he's mm. out there singing Misty pretty much the same way every night. Uh, and I was so struck by his commitment to it. And so I, I asked him at some point, I said, how do you do that? How do you go out there and sing that song every night? I said, you sing Misty every single night. He goes, well, it's a great song. <laughs> I said, I, I know it's a great song, man, but every night. And, and you, you don't seem to tire of it. He goes, well, it's, a, it's an honor to sing that song. And I said, okay. And I'm thinking at the time in my, you know, youthful naivete i'm thinking ah, oh, it's kind of a bs answer you know mm-hmm. and and then uh he said he said look my fans want to hear me sing it they pay to come see me why why wouldn't i play it for them and so it still didn't really resonate for me until 20 years later and i have a big band and we have this song called the jazz police and every time we play a concert all the you know high school kids want to hear it and they go crazy and all of a sudden, I'm going, oh, my God, I get it. So we play Jazz Police at the end of every one of our gigs, you know, and, um, and s- some of the guys in the band put in earplugs when we play it. And I, I, I doubt it's their favorite. It's certainly not the most content-filled <laughs> chart I've written. But right. there's an energy, and then there's a, there's a, 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 a it's kind of meaningful to play something for people that really, really want to hear it. So we go for it every night that we play that song. and and so. Um, now that that kind of taught me something about, you know, about appreciating the gift that it is even to be able to get on stage and play music for people. You know, sometimes 
we take that for granted, especially when you're, we're younger and we just kind of think, oh, it's just the way it is, the way it's always going to be. But it ain't always. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be that way. And that's something that I've learned is that every time I get to play music for people that want to hear it, there's nothing better. So speaking of playing music and impacting people, let's go back to the beginning of Gordon Goodwin as a musician. Do you have any kind of clear recollection of when music impacted you at a very early age? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, uh, I've thought about it quite a bit. I can... I can um, trace it down to three or four seminal moments. The first one, I don't, I can't really claim to remember it. I, I think I might be remembering what my mom and dad told me, which is that I would, I would sit in front of the TV as a toddler, not a toddler, but maybe you know, a kindergarten kid, and I would um, uh, watch the Mickey Mouse Club, and I would conduct, I'd wave my arms to the theme song, which is this march, you know, and, I'd, and every time it came on, I'd run to the TV and do that, you know. So clearly that, had some sort of a um, you know impact on me. After that, uh, another another Disney related impact. I went to the movies and saw this uh, this uh, film they did called The Jungle Book, and I'm watching this thing, and it's you know beautiful, bright colors and everything. But then this song came on, and they had a, uh, this these monkeys, and these monkeys were scat singing, in the, you know. Hmm. And I remember thinking, what? It? I didn't know it was called scat singing, but I thought, well, that is really really cool. And then uh, uh, maybe around that time, or a little, maybe a year later, I'm on the bus to school, and I'm in a fourth grade, and they were playing a Nancy Sinatra song called "These Boots Are Made for Walking," and it had a walking bass line, hmm. kind of a chromatic, a whole tony, you know. And mm-hmm. I, I heard that. I go, "What is that? That's a cool thing. What is that?" Ironically, later on, I became friends with Chuck Berghofer, who's the guy that played on that on that track back then, you know. Hmm. And um, so, those things uh, I, can, I you can kind of see the uh, pieces fall into place, you know, of of uh, mm-hmm. things that are pulling me in the direction of jazz. Um, I got into Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, and they played some. It wasn't really jazz, but they did a lot of shuffle music, shuffle feels, you know. And then, um, mm-hmm. and the other thing that that hit me a lot was. Uh, Neil Hefty's theme song to the Batman uh, TV show. And I learned to play it on piano. And, um, <laughs> and I've been taking piano lessons since I was in kindergarten, but not particularly liking it or excelling in any way until I learned that Batman theme. And then I remember playing it for my, my classmates, you know, and, and they were like, oh, my God, this is so cool. He can do that. And I thought, hey, wait a minute. Maybe this is my thing, you know, because, you know, when you're a kid, you're trying to figure out who, who, I, who am I? What are my gifts, you know? How, so I, how, old I, was the, uh, how old were you when you did the Batman on the piano? About fourth grade. Okay. So, so um, uh, I will say the, the other thing that happened that had great significance that I didn't realize at the time was when I was in kindergarten, just started piano lessons, my piano teacher, who was a woman by the name of Janet Hodges, and she said, you need to play your scales. You know, and I hated that. Of course, who you know who likes that, right? But mm-hmm. but she was crafty because she goes, if you play your C major scale next week, I'll let you write a song. And I mm-hmm. I said, write a song. What did what, what does that even mean? You know, she was just <laughs> learn this scale and then I'll let you write a song. So the next week, she she wrote out the left hand of a little eight bar or maybe it might have even been four bars. And she goes, now you put the right hand in. So I wrote out some crappy thing, you know, and, and, and I didn't even know if I knew how to notate it. I just kind of scribbled sure. some stuff. And then she goes, okay, great. Now this week, 
I want you to write uh, a waltz. And I thought, well, what is a waltz? She goes, well, it's in three-quarter time, and it goes, you know. So I went home and wrote like a crappy little waltz, eight bars, you know. And then she goes, great. Now, next week, I want you to write a march. And so she would have me write like these little snippets every week, do a polka, do a this or that. So it was pretty early on that she put it in my head that I could create things, you know, not just play other people's, uh, you know, pieces, but I could maybe create my own stuff. So um, that, I think, ended up being important kind of at a, you know, fundamental level for me. Um, But then uh, I didn't do too much of that until seventh grade and then uh, where I wrote my first big band chart. And that's uh, largely due to my band director, Robin Snyder was his name. And he he pulled me aside and said, "You, you need to listen to this record. And he gave me a Count Basie record and he played it for me. And he played a a song by Sammy Nestico called The Queen Bee. And that's the song that changed my life right there. I, I had this epiphany, like, that's it. That's, mm. I got to do that, whatever that is, you know. And so he said, you should write, write a song your, yourself. So I wrote a little song, and, and he pl- we played it in the middle school band. And, and um, then, I, then I realized, man, a lot of people are playing their instruments, but nobody's doing this. Maybe this is something I should, I should think about. Wow, so as a seventh grader, that's when you really kind of, you know, added composer to your uh, resume. Yeah, and and uh, I know, and I I uh, I realized how what a how lucky I was, and how circumstances, you know, led that I could find that because um, there are plenty of people that you know aren't able to find you know find out what their gift is for a, a long time. Um, right. I, you know, back then, of course, you know, when you, if you were to be a composer, you had to be in a band. You know, you, you, you didn't have a laptop sitting at home, you know, with mm-hmm. GarageBand or whatever you're using, you know, to compose. You had to have a band in order to execute what that. And so that led to an interesting thing for me because I remember thinking, I have to write music that these kids are going to like and want to play or else they won't want to play it. So that informed what I wrote. Like, how can I make it interesting for the guys in the band? Because I, I wow. can remember feeling like they would make fun of me, or they, you know, they would think I was arrogant sure. to think that I could write, a, you know, my own music or something, you know, whatever that was, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it wasn't, it, and I think that that uh, predilection stuck with me for a long time. Got to write for the players so they like it. Yeah, and, I, I get it because I, I started writing when I was in college, and I wrote a piece, and a buddy of mine said, "Can you bring it to the next quartet gig?" And I was actually nervous to have someone read my music and then the guy said they liked it and I was like are you just being nice or telling me the truth but it was like <laughs> yeah. I felt like I had no clothes on on stage almost when I gave them my music oh it's something else you know I had a uh, uh, a piece that I wrote for an orchestra called the New American Orchestra and it was a uh, an orchestra here in Los Angeles made up of all these incredible studio musicians and uh, this was back in um, 80, early 80s and I wrote a, a piece for the trombone player Bill Watrous and it was kind of a jazzy, symphonic piece. And um, on the program, and I, I, I'm afraid I don't remember the name of it, but there was a beautiful symphonic work by Alan Broadbent. And I was at rehearsal. And I'm, a, I'm just starting out, you know, my career, and I, you know, I'm pretty nervous. But nothing compared to Alan. Alan was at this rehearsal, and he's pacing, you know. And I, and I said, hey, uh, how you doing? You know, he goes, it's like giving childbirth. I, I, I can't stay here. I mean, he was so anxious at, at the rehearsal to hear, you know, 
his piece being born in front of him. And, of course, I said I, I couldn't even believe how beautiful and how somebody could come up with the sounds that he came up with, you know, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> compared to what I thought was kind of a, you know, a starter effort on, on my part you know, <laughs> right. uh, at that time. So I don't know, man. Maybe John Williams never has that anxiety, you know, but I think all <laughs> of us have that still to one degree or another when we put a piece of music up. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Most composers I know, it's a uh, it's nerve-wracking for the debut, you know, because I was talking to, um, what's his name, uh, Michael Kurth from the Atlanta Symphony, and I said, when you write a new piece, like, do you play the piece or do you sit there? And he said, oh, I can never play. I can, I, I, I'm, I'm too nervous to play. I have to let other people do it, uh, mm. he said, because I have to sit in the back and just kind of observe, he said, because it's too emotional. You know, that's one, re- one reason why... Um... The technology we have today is, has really helped my composing, because it used to mm-hmm. be, you know, I'd be there with a, you know, score pad and a pencil and a piano, and I'd sit there and I would have to uh, play the piece from the beginning to kind of check the lay of the land and see how it's how it's flowing and all that stuff. And so, if there was a piece, part of it that didn't work, I was like, okay, now did I just not play that right, or mm-hmm. is or are there compositional flaws here? Whereas now, if I'm composing into digital performer. I can I can step back and be an observer, have it play it back, and I can assess it with more objectivity. So I had to make that transition um, from composing, you know, with a, with a pencil to that. But um, I'm way better and way faster now due, due to that technology. Oh, sure. Yep. Even though it's it's got things about it that are seductive that mm-hmm. I try to avoid, all the kind of cut-and-paste options that can happen when you're composing or when you're orchestrating um, right. that, that can, that can tend to kind of smooth down the edges a little bit. Sometimes I've heard that happen to some guys and uh, I've tried to, to not, uh, not matter of fact. So that's when I orchestrate in finale, I do input every note. I don't, I don't import MIDI files or anything because I really want to kind of get into the weeds, you know, oh, uh, right. with the music and make sure that, it, you know, I'm making corrections and improving it at every step. Yeah, one of my, you know, college uh, composition professors, Rob Maggio, uh, he always would, we would do them digitally, but he'd always go, have you played through it yourself? Like, can people play this? Is it playable? Like, so he made us go through, as you said, get into the weeds of the piece and go, all right, is this actually playable on trumpet or saxophone or whatever instrument you're writing it for? Uh, Just because the computer can play it doesn't mean it's going to work. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and that, yeah, and that's yeah. one of the bigger issues with guys that that came up not playing in bands, but you know, just riding on uh, that technology. That I mean, when I came up, I actually sat down and like with a harpist, I said, "Can you show me how this works?" I sat in mm-hmm. front of the harp and I and I and I kind of physically, okay, here's how these pedals work, and here's what you do. I held a violin and I had somebody show me where well, you put your fingers and how does that work. Even though I can't play that instrument, at least I've held it and I've tried to get familiar with it. You know, and um, so uh, I, I took I, I took um, composition le- lessons from a guy named Albert Harris, and and he was a staff orchestrator at Universal back in the day when they had that thing. You know, and uh, mm-hmm. and I studied with him, and I remember saying to him, "I, Mr. Harris, I feel like my, my if I write for or- orchest- orchestral instruments, like my I write a line for an oboe, and it." sounds like an oboe part for a while, then it, parts of it doesn't, and it seems like inconsistent. He goes, Goodwin, you're writing for piano. You're not writing for the oboe. He goes, you need to write for the instrument. And if you, and if you don't know what, what it does, then you have no business writing for it. And, 
And he goes, here's what I want you to do. And he, and he laid out a, a big uh, pad of score paper. He goes, I want you to compose eight bars, but don't put a single note down till you know it's orchestrational uh, destination. So don't just write generic music and assign those notes to different instruments. Write for those instruments so, so that the, the orchestrational intent is born at the same time as the, you know, the compositional idea is. And I, and I was wow. paralyzed. You know, I, I, I sat there for 12 minutes before I could even put a single note down. You know, and, um, but he was right. And, and so now, uh, through you know, some years of learning to do that, when I write something, I kind of know who's going to play it right there mm-hmm. at the beginning. Not all the time. Not 100%, but, but you know, majority of the time I think I do have that in mind. Oh, yeah, that's key. You know, I have young kids presenting, you know, orchestrations to me, and I'm like, yeah, the trumpets really shouldn't be jumping up and down two octaves, you know, on eighth notes. And they're like, what? Because they're the guitar players or whatever. I'm like, guitar players can do that. Trumpets can't. <laughs> yeah. Or whatever. Right. But then you get into a situation that I'm, you know, blessed to have with a band full of guys that can play almost anything oh, right. I put in front of them, mm-hmm. which, which is, um, which is, you know, what the charts that I write, I mean, I'm writing for people like Wayne Bergeron and Eric Marienthal. So, and those guys sure. can play anything. And then we publish them and they go out on the marketplace and high school kids have to try to confront that stuff that yeah. if I was writing a chart for a high school band, I, I probably wouldn't make that choice. But on the other hand, I, I don't think it's bad, you know, for a young musician to try to try to go for something. Even if he doesn't get 100% there, if he gets 65% of the way, he's probably going to improve, you know, from the effort oh, right. of trying to do it. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of how that's worked out for us. Yeah. You know, I'm glad the young guys are digging into it because that's the only way they're going to learn. So it's really cool. Yeah. Um, so you play piano and woodwinds and stuff. Have you always been a multi-instrumentalist, or did that come later? Um, tell me about that. Uh, it probably oh, it came pretty early, because I was playing piano since kindergarten, clarinet in the fourth grade, saxophone in the seventh grade. And, mm-hmm. and then in high school, I, I added the flute and um, kept all those going through college and probably for about 10, 15 years after college. But then I got to a point where I, I just thought, okay, I, uh, there's not enough time. And, I, and I, I remember I got, I was on a recording session and they told me it was, uh, it was saxophone. And listen, my flute playing was fine, you know, and I had a pretty good sound and I could play in tune, but I, I was, I would kind of tuck in under the really good flop, flute players in the band, you know? Okay. I was I was always on the second chair or something like that, and I was good enough to do that. But I, I wasn't it didn't have any illusions about it. I could play a good solo on it and all that. But I was on a session, and they said it's it's tenor sax and a little bit of flute. All right, so I bring my tenor, got my flute, and I get there, and it, and the part's actually for alto flute, which I don't even own one of those. So <laughs> I'm like, oh man, I don't I don't have an alto flute. So a friend of mine who's in the section he goes here just use mine he passes his flute down i said man maybe you should play this he goes no i got to play bass clarinet on this go ahead you can do it so oh shit so i put the flute together and i'm looking at the solo and it's a low register alto flute solo with a lot of sustained windy notes you know <laughs> at a slow tempo and i was hosed man i was trying to I didn't have time to warm up on this strange instrument that I didn't play anyway, and it's a you know medium-sized orchestra in the recording studio, and I'm trying to play this really exposed solo with these light string textures around it. 
And I, I think it might have been a C-plus effort by the time, you know, maybe B-minus <laughs> at tops. And I went into the, to the, to the control room, which musicians hardly ever are supposed to do. And I went to the composer and said, you know, you need to do that again and have that other guy overdub that solo. He goes, we don't have time to do that. I said, well, listen, this isn't what I do. I'm, I'm sorry. I really apologize. But he goes, oh, it's fine. We'll just have to live with it. And um, <laughs> after that experience, I said, that's it. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to put myself or anyone else through that. And, and, and the thing is that, you know, it didn't matter that I didn't have that. I, he didn't care that I'm practicing, conducting, and I'm composing, and I'm doing the piano and whatever else I'm doing. What does he care? He wants his alto flute solo played. So, so uh, I put the flute away, and I put the clarinet in the closet too. So, mm. and so uh, currently I play the keyboards, tenor and soprano saxophone, and those those three things I keep you know within arms you know arms reach most of the time. But um, okay. I, I had I definitely had to. I had, I'm sorry, we're getting beeped here. I definitely had to make that choice, you know, and and realize that there's a finite amount of time, and then add to the fact that you know you get a family and you want to spend some time with them and and uh, go to your kids' basketball games and stuff like that. So um, you know, you just can't do everything. So th- those two instruments, you know, they were pretty easy cut. Okay. If you had a preference, do you prefer playing or composing, or is it pretty much tied? Hmm, yeah. yeah um, well, you know, the thing about composing, as you know, it's a solitary endeavor. So the process of composing is not like it's... Um, how can I put this? It's not like it's fun, exactly. Right. Even though exactly. it's rewarding. And, and so... Um, I mean, I, I'm pretty disciplined about how I structure my day, and so I'll I'll kind of review the day at the end of the day. Okay, what did I do? Oh, yeah, that was good. I accomplished that, you know, and then I think about what I have to do the next day. Um, so uh, I, I like having a body of work and being able to build, you know, on that. But there's nothing like playing music with, with people, especially, um, you know, people that agree with you, that have the same... Um, point of view about music and about life, you know, those are the kind of people I love to play music with, is people that, you know, kind of are uh, optimistic, you know, positive people. Those are the kind of people we look forward to having in our band, you know, and um, so once I started to uh, do gigs with the Big Fat Band, I I, uh, was reminded of what a thrill it is to play music, you know, because for a while I wasn't doing much playing, I was just writing music and you know, doing films and things like that, making good money. But it was a little bit like uh, kind of punching the clock. And I'd, mm-hmm. I'd work for I'd work for Disney and I'd write in their style. Then I'd go over work for Warner Brothers and writing the style of Carl Stalin. And 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 that was at a point where I did have a bit of an epiphany when I thought, is this what I do? Because I remember I remember writing for Warner Brothers and they would say that they would often say to me that cue was really great. But next time, maybe a little less Gordon Goodwin, a little more, a little more Carl Stalling, you mm-hmm. know. And so I, I'd say, okay, is this who I am? Am I just a gun for hire, where I go to you know different studios and emulate other people's styles, which which is an honorable thing to do. But it, it was at that point that I thought, I think maybe I need to plant my flag and say, look, this is this is who I am. And so that's when I uh, put the put the big band together. 
went to the studio and, and recorded our first record when I kind of realized that if I don't do it now, when am I going to do it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, right. and I got to say, man, it was liberating. When I finally just said, you know what, this is who I am, this is what I like or what I believe in, and if you like me, great, and if you don't like me, okay, you know. Once I got to that point, uh, it was very, uh, a, lot of, a lot of pressure was relieved. Of course. Yeah. Uh, do you actually have time or the desire to listen to music for fun? Uh, actually, up until 23 weeks ago, the answer was, was seldom. And then 23 weeks ago, I got approached by a jazz station out here in Los Angeles, 88.1. It's uh, K-Jazz, and it's, a, it's an old station. I mean, I grew up listening to it. It's got a huge listener base. Um, and they approached me about doing a show. And I thought, that oh, would be interesting. Uh, what would that be? So I took a meeting with them, and we talked about you know, some of the possibilities because they, they had come to see the band. We played for a, a fundraiser for the station at the Walt Disney Concert Hall. It was a really fun night, and I was on stage doing my, you know, usual shenanigans, you know. And they kind of liked <clears throat> kind of how like, some of the stuff I did, so they asked me about doing the show, and I said, tell you what, I'll do it, but I want to be able to do, play anything I want, meaning if I want to play Count Basie, I'll do that. If I want to play Tower of Power or the Doobie Brothers, or if I want to play film music, I want to be able to do everything. I'd like to kind of break down the barriers between genres so that you don't say jazz has to exist between this line and this line. So they said, go for it. So I've been doing this show called Fat Tracks with Gordon Goodwin, and the mission statement of the show is to play any and all styles of music. So um, as long as it, it, as long as it has a, a degree of content, and of course that's where, the, that's where the rubber meets the road is defining what that means, you know. Um, but, um, so since I started doing the show, I've been discovering a lot of new music in, you know, the research I have to do to, to, uh, put the show together. And it's been so invigorating. It's been, it's been, um, rejuvenating too, to be able to kind of hear some of the new things that are going on. And, um, uh, I usually take, uh, about a day, maybe a day and a half to do a show, mostly because uh, I mean, the show airs on Saturdays from 12 to 2, and it's like a two-hour show. But I try to do a lot of production pieces, you know. So it isn't just, here's this guy and here's this guy. I'll try to do, like, I'll play a Chick Corea song, and I'll go, now let's take a look at the harmonies. And I say, hear this chord, and I'll play it on the piano. I go, look how this melody integrates with this harmony. And, and I'll kind of get into the weeds on the the musical part of it. Or I'll, I'll do a quick interview, you know, with uh, somebody that played on the track, and I'll say, "Hey, Bob Mincer, tell me about this song, and, and what what did you uh, think when you wrote it?" So I'll play a little mm-hmm. clip of him talking about the song, stuff like that, which is really great and brings a lot of interest to the show, but takes time to organize, you know, and, and kind of put it together. So, um, uh, so anyway, the show's been really fun. Uh, I think it's doing well. It's a, uh, it's a. Uh, not financially uh, remunerating at all, you know, but yeah. it's part of building your brand, you know, it's part of kind of being able to spread, uh, you know, your philosophy a little bit. And uh, and I'm happy to say, after 23 weeks of the show, I haven't done one Donald Trump joke the whole time. Excellent. <laughs> that That is some discipline stuff there. <laughs> Outstanding. <laughs> so, I did play, I did play a Jack Sheldon, uh, so I found a Jack Sheldon song from like the 1962 
on a record he did, and it, the name of the song was called No Trump. And I said, oh, i got to play this. <laughs> Very <laughs> I mean, timely. He, he was pressing it, yeah, exactly. Does, um, is it available online uh, if uh, I put a link under the uh It podcast? is, yeah. Yeah, they, they, um, uh, they have their, their – it's on um, – they have their own, uh, you know, app, but they also have, it's on TuneIn Radio and iHeart. Um, but uh, yeah, the website is uh, www.jazzandblues.org. Great. I'll include that under the uh, podcast for the listeners of this uh, cool. interview. Cool. The other thing that's um, good about having your own radio show is that when you have a new record to promote, like I do, you've got a, yes. a platform, you know. So I've been. We have this this band called the Little Fat Band. It's kind of a new thing we're doing, and uh, the record's coming out pretty quickly on, on September 9th. And so I've been kind of leaking the tracks out little by little over the last month on the show. Excellent. Yeah. See. See how that works. That's perfect. That was. Yeah. I I I opened it right up for you. I opened the window. That was great. You did, man. You <laughs> lobbed you lobbed that pitch right in there. <laughs> uh huh. Besides uh, getting ready for the release of your new album, uh, what's it called again? Oh, it's called An Elusive Man. And it's, uh, it's Gordon Goodman's Little Fat Man, and it's, it's it's all guys from the Big Fat Band: Wayne Bergeron on trumpet, Andy Martin on trombone, Eric Marienthal on a, on saxophone, and Bernie Dressel on the drums, Rick Shaw on the bass, Andrew Sinowick on guitar, and Joey DeLeon on, on the percussion. And I I played the piano, a little bit of saxophone, and so it's kind of the same point of view as the Big Band stuff, but a little more open ended, you know, a little more room to let it let it evolve as opposed to not as much structure as a big man needs, you know. Nice, nice. Another question for you. Um, outside of music, uh, do you have any other activities that are non-musical? Wow. There's, there's the problem of my life, actually, <laughs> right there. Because, because um, I mean, I, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't overstate it. I mean, I love to read books and stuff. Um, I love to swim. But... I'm like, uh, I, I love music so much, and, and uh, I've always had a problem with things like vacations, because if I'm, on, if I'm in Maui, I'm sitting on the lounge chair, and I have things going buzzing in my head, little mm-hmm. tunes, little ideas, or things I want to do, and, and um, I, I've, I've had, my family's kind of had to endure that. If they're talking to me at the dinner table, I might be going, I think, you know, something's going on, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of whispering the melody subconsciously. They're like, Dad, hey, right over here, you know. So um, it's like when people talk about retirement, I can't wait to retire. And I'm like, why would I ever stop doing this? This exactly. is like the, on my worst day, I get to write music. Even when I'm writing the worst music for, you know, I'm getting hired to write something I don't believe in. It's still, what? come on, that's an, an incredible thing to be able to do. So, um, but having said that, I love animation. I've got a bunch of. I probably have uh, fifty different books on the art of animation, I'm, and I, the time I've spent composing for animation has been great. And I've got a long relationship with the Walt Disney Company and doing some things for them right now. I'm a kind of a student of the JFK assassination. I've probably got fifty books on that. Wow. I got enough information on that topic to be completely confused now as to what might have happened. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so I, I definitely, I definitely do like reading, and um, and I love politics. I love you know talking politics and and following that, as as frustrating as as that can be sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, 
awesome. My uh, dad uh, actually met JFK, and my dad's name is John Kennedy. It was like this weird thing. He said he shook his hand, and they exchanged words for a few seconds when my dad was in the service in the 60s. Uh, wow. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, and the second wow, my mother, her maiden name was Oswald. Okay. I'm not making it okay, up. Okay, come on. <laughs> no, really, yeah. I got married in 66, and it was Kennedy marries Oswald in the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> that's really classic. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Yeah. You know, we, mm-hmm. we, uh, my, my daughter, Madison, is, uh, is way into it as well. I kind of inflicted her with my, you know, obsession. So we've gone to Dallas, gone to the Grassy Knoll, you know, mm-hmm. done all the things. And we, and we went to uh, Oswald's Boarding House, which is on Beckley Street. And it's just a, you know, an assuming little house. And we're standing in the kind of in the driveway, just looking at it. And then a station wagon pulls in. And we're like, oh, sorry, sorry. And the occupant of the house pulls up with some groceries. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, we, we, we don't want to interfere. I know you must have people bugging you a lot. And she goes, oh, that's okay. You know, and so my, she sees my daughter. She goes, oh, are you, uh, are you interested in what happened here? And she goes, my daughter goes, oh, I, I'm so fascinated by it. I think it's so important. And so this woman goes, well, when I was a little girl, this is my mom's house, and she rented it to Oswald. And when I was a little <laughs> wow. girl, Oswald used to babysit me and my brother. Oh, my gosh. Ah, I know. <laughs> and we're like, you know. Right. And, <laughs> And so we talked to her for 15 minutes, and you know, and I said, "Well, do you think that he did it?" She goes, "Well, I don't know, but I can. This, what I do remember is that my brother and I would fight, like like siblings do. And I remember Oswald saying, you should never fight. Family is too important. Never fight with your family.'" She goes, "I remember. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing I remember him saying to me." I said, "Well, I don't think that provides evidence." <laughs> <laughs> Either way, whether he did it <laughs> right, or not. Right, right. But it was so amazing to be that close to history, you know. Right, right. Talking, talking to that, that, that woman, so. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, and my dad, I'll send you a picture. My dad took a picture of Kennedy uh, just a few weeks before he was assassinated in the, and it was the same uh, presidential car. So I'll send you that picture just so you can have it for your archives if you want it. Uh, you, want, you might want to get be careful because we're we might have to hijack this whole podcast and take it all all JFK, man. That's true. Be. Maybe we'll do a part two later on. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm well, there. Gordon, um, thanks again for your time. It's uh, been a, an honor to talk to you, and uh, I love playing your music and all your new projects. And uh, I'll be sure to uh, put a link and promote your new project that's coming out September 9th, and I won't forget because it's my wife's birthday. Yeah, um, we, that's so. how we we planned it that way. That, that's what I figured. That's what I figured in the back of my mind. So um, we're very excited. All the listeners and I are very excited to hear your new project. And I wish you the best and hope to talk to you again soon. It's been great. I really appreciate it. And congratulations on the podcast and the whole thing, Sean. Appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, Gordon. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Today's soundtrack, of course, was provided by Gordon Goodwin and the Big Fat Band. Please visit the Big Fat Band's website to find out more about these great recordings. And I also put a link about the new recording, which is dropping September 9th, called An Elusive Man by the Little Fat Band. Thanks for listening.